you've reached Anthony Bledsoe. Leave me a message, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. As this investigation has gone on, I've been able to count on Anthony when I've hit a dead end. He's pointed me towards a new lead, a new avenue of inquiry, anytime we've discussed Lisa and Violet. When the trail ran cold, Anthony swooped in to the rescue. I'd considered them lucky breaks. Then I saw him on the security camera footage at my hotel, dropping off the tapes of Lisa being held captive by Mercy and Light members. When I first spoke to Ricky under house arrest in Olive Hill, Ricky had said that a trusted friend was dropping them off. A trusted friend. Clearly, they've been manipulating me, working me. What were they trying to keep from me? Since Anthony hasn't been answering my calls, it looks like I'm going to have to go to him. My mother was old-fashioned, traditional. I used to think of her as living a small life, uninteresting, boring, small. I never wanted my mother's life. It doesn't appeal to me, even though people told me as I got older it would. It didn't, doesn't. But I don't think I want the path I'm on now, extrapolated outward to its logical conclusion, a career and accomplishment-centered drive to outdo the last thing, a constant race against my peers and myself. That's exhausting. Maybe I want something in the middle, or something else altogether. Maybe no matter what, life is just a little bit unsatisfying. I thought that spending time cleaning out her things, figuring out what to do with the artifacts of a life that's over, struggling through the conversations with people I haven't seen or thought of in 15 years, I thought maybe I would learn something about her that I didn't know. If I've learned anything, it's this. The woman I knew, the one who I thought had settled for the kind of mediocrity that I'd been running from, she didn't settle at all. She just had a different dream than me. And I think I learned that way too late. My mom knew what she wanted. She wanted a family, a little home in the town where she was born. And she wanted to raise her daughter there. She wanted to be a wife and a mother, and that's what she did. She went out and got it. She built her dream. It didn't last, dreams never do, but she got it for a time. It's not what I want, but it doesn't have to be. Good for her. Jesus, Esther, what are you doing? You've been ignoring me. I haven't been ignoring you. You have absolutely been ignoring me. You are not entitled to my time. What happened? Why did you disappear? I've been busy. I know you've been busy, Anthony. I turned my phone to him. On the screen, a still frame from the hotel security camera footage of him dropping off the package at my hotel. It was a pretty dramatic reveal perfectly set up and timed, 
I was pretty proud of myself. Right. Well, look. If you think I have anything to do with what's on those tapes, then you're dead fucking wrong. I don't know what to think. How can I know what to think? You've been manipulating me this whole time. I'm sorry, Esther. I'm, I'm sorry, but I can't help you anymore. I don't want you to help me. I want you to tell me the truth. Carla knew about the girls in the forest. Copies of Violet and Lisa out there in the woods. Lisa told her. At the end of those tapes, when she was crying and, and pleading with them, you told me about them the first time we met. You told me you saw one outside the window watching you and Violet the first time you slept together. But that's fucking crazy, Anthony. She knew things only you've told me. How would she know about identical copies of the girls in the forest unless you've all been in on this? You and her and Ricky. I get it that Carla needs to justify what happened back then. And, and she's, she's prone to believing in magic. But what about you? I think you've been keeping secrets for so long and you want to tell me so bad that you've been dropping hints, hoping I'd pick them up and dig deeper. Well, here I am. I could just keep shouting about the magical fairies you saw in the forest. Fuck, fine. Come inside. Do you want something to drink? No, I'm fine. Can I start over? I would love it if you would start over. Okay. You knew that those tapes existed. You knew it before we watched them together, didn't you? Okay. Is that a yes? Ricky and I have kept in touch. We talk sometimes about the girls, especially when someone like you comes around. When that happens, we talk about how to get rid of them as quickly as we can. You were different. You were settling your mom's affairs. And listen, I'm sorry for your loss. I mean that sincerely. Thanks. So I took the lead. I could tell that you were more interested than most of the media people who come around, so I talked about Violet. And yeah, it felt good to talk about her, and not just about that night. It wasn't malicious. Me and Ricky just want to be left alone, so we were managing you. We hoped you'd get frustrated and leave it alone. I guess since you were more interested in talking about the girls instead of talking about the ghost story, that it was easy for me to keep going and tell you more than usual. You were also, you know, familiar. We knew you, kind of, and I let my guard down. That's it, though. I guess Ricky realized that he had a chance to get the record straight about Lisa after I told him that you were really interested in doing this right, you know, to do the girls justice. So, back to your question. I knew that I was dropping off VHS tapes. I knew that they'd held Lisa captive. I knew what was on those tapes, but I had never seen them before that night you and I watched them. You've talked to Carla Hayes. Why have you and Carla been in contact about Lisa and Violet? I've racked my brain, and I can't imagine any reason for you to confide in her. Ricky Allen, you got angry the last time we talked. When people get angry and emotional, they say things they don't mean to, or even realize. Their inhibition's lower. He said something that sounded like he knew what happened that night. If he was angry and emotional, maybe he just didn't word it well. I think you all have a story. 
the three of you. I think you've been dropping hints because it's eating you up, and I don't think you've finished telling it. <laughs> so now you want a ghost story too? I want the truth. What happened to those girls? Okay, I'll tell you a ghost story. So let's imagine. Let's imagine our ghost story starts with a boy and a girl who were friends for as long as either of them could remember. They started dating in high school. Let's imagine they have a friend who grew up with them. They all grew up together. They played in the forest. You know this part of the story. When they were a little bit older, they weren't going out and playing in the forest anymore. They'd grown out of that. One of the girls, Lisa, had moved away. Me and Violet, we still hung out because we lived so close, but it wasn't like it used to be. We hadn't had a falling out, but it was kind of a lull in our friendship. Anyway, I was over at Violet's because our parents still looked after each other's kids. We were sitting in the living room, kind of doing our own separate things. When she gets up and starts walking away, Normally, I would just let this go, but something seemed off. I couldn't put my finger on it, so I asked if she was okay. She didn't answer. She just kept walking. She opened up the door and went outside. It didn't feel right. I stopped what I was doing, and I watched her through the sliding door of the back of her house. She was moving weird. Not like she was unsteady or off balance. Just the opposite. She was too intentional. It looked robotic. I ran outside and caught up with her. I tried talking to her. Nothing. I tried shaking her. Nothing. I stood in front of her, but she just walked around me. I wasn't afraid. I was more irritated. Her eyes were open. They were moving around, scanning the landscape. It was like she was just fucking with me, you know? So we walked through her backyard, out onto her property, away from the house. We walked to the end of her family's land, and then out into the forest. It was the same way that we went when we were young. Younger. She squeezed herself through the planks in the fence. It wasn't clumsy. It was one smooth motion, and a little creepy. She still isn't responding this whole time. We passed our old fort, the one that we'd spent the two summers clearing out. I kept following. She veered off the trail and we started walking through the underbrush. It wasn't rugged terrain, but it wasn't exactly easy either. A few minutes later, we were getting close to that ravine where she fell when we were kids playing hide and seek. I started to get nervous because I'm worried that she's gonna walk right off the edge so we get close, and she's heading straight towards it. I got in front of her. I clap my hands in front of her face. I am shaking her, and she's not coming to. I tried to just grab her and hold her back, but she kept moving. I slowed her down, but she was still heading right for the drop-off. When we get to the edge of the ravine, I think she's about to drag me right off. But instead, she just knelt down and started climbing down the ledge. So I start climbing down behind her, and when we get to the bottom, she sits down on the ground 
closes her eyes and doesn't move. Now I'm pissed off. She just led me through the forest and I thought she's fucking with me. So I'm pacing around and I am talking shit to her and she's not responding to any of it. Even though I'm mad, I know something is seriously wrong with this. I didn't have a watch and it was before cell phones. So I don't know how long we sat there, cross-legged, her eyes open, looking straight ahead and occasionally scanning around. It was creepy and it felt like it was a long damn time. And that's when I heard something coming towards us. I looked up to where the sound was coming from and it's Lisa climbing down the ravine. She got to the bottom and just ignored me the same way Violet was ignoring me. So now I'm really freaking out. On one hand, I'm thinking that they're still fucking with me, right? They have to be. On the other hand, I'm really weirded out by everything that's going on around me. I was so creeped out, I couldn't stay down there at the bottom of the ravine with them. So I climbed back up to the top and just sat on the ledge and watched them. I waited. I don't know how long it was. And then, just like that, like someone flipped a switch, they both came to. They were disoriented for a second, but after that passed, they started talking to each other like this wasn't a big deal. They started looking each other over for scratches and injuries. It was like a routine. And that's when they saw me sitting at the top of the ravine. Then they started to panic. Violet asked how long I'd been there. I told her I'd followed her from her house. That's when Lisa told me a story. She said that when we were kids, that day we were playing hide and seek by the ravine and they fell in, she said they both woke up and the fairies, whatever the fairies are, the girls that looked identical to them were walking away through the trees back into the forest. The girls said they knew that they had died and the fairies, they brought them back, but somehow they were in the wrong body. Violet woke up in Lisa's body and Lisa woke up in Violet's body. So Violet is Lisa in Violet's body, and Lisa is Violet in Lisa's body. So Violet as Lisa... Why don't we call them by the names that we know them by now? Okay, we can do that. So that's why they were panicking and pointing and screaming at each other. That day that I ran away and waited for them by the barn back at Violet's farm. They made a plan, Violet and Lisa. Except now it's reverse now. Got it. Right. Violet, who woke up in Lisa's body, went home with Lisa's parents that day. And Lisa, who woke up in Violet's body, went home with Violet's parents. They only thought that it would last a day or two. They'd find the fairies back out in the forest and they'd make them fix it. But the fairies never came back. It was only a week or two when Lisa's parents told Lisa, who was actually Violet, that they were getting divorced. And then she moved into town with her mom, and we didn't see her around very much after that. They told me that sometimes they felt things that happened to the other person, like physical sensations, things that happened to their old body. And sometimes, every few months or so, they would wake up at the bottom of the ravine where they'd fallen. Neither of them ever remembered getting there, ever. They didn't remember anything from the walk. They just 
woke up. Sometimes it happened during the day, sometimes at night. There wasn't a real pattern. So Lisa came back with us and she crashed in the barn that's really more of a guest room in the back of the Hales farm. And then she walked back into town. I know it sounds crazy, but looking back on it, I could see it. I'd noticed their mannerisms had changed and their personalities. They both seemed strange in the days right after they had fallen. I had always been closer to Lisa, maybe because we had walked back and forth to Violet's place together when we were little. Maybe we just clicked better, I, I don't know. But looking back, after that day, me and Violet were closer, because it was Lisa. I know none of that proves anything, but it was right away, the change. It wasn't gradual. That was also the same time that Lisa's mom dragged Lisa down to the police station and demanded to know how to get her real daughter back. Angela Banks wasn't crazy. That was Violet's consciousness, trapped in Lisa's body. Every now and then I would notice other things. When they said that they could still experience sensations that happened to their old bodies, anytime one of them was homesick from school, so was the other one. When we were a little bit older, I had the idea to start hiding flashlights and water bottles out there for them, so they wouldn't have to walk back in the dark, and if they got thirsty, they'd have something to drink. When I got older and learned how to drive my dad's farm truck, I would sometimes wake up to Lisa throwing rocks at my window so that I could drive her back home. Other times, she would just stay in the guest house at Violet's barn for a day or two before going back. Her mom talked about how she used to run away and come home a day or two later. That's where she was hiding in a guest house that used to be her home. We never knew what that was. When they would sleepwalk in the forest, I still don't know. But I've seen it. My guess, it was some kind of lingering side effect from when they were changed, or when they were brought back. So you remember the thing that got everyone thinking that Lisa was a witch, or possessed, whatever? The episode that she had in the cafeteria when she started moaning, trying to stand, but she couldn't keep her balance. She was sweating and shaking. I wasn't in high school yet, but I know the story. Well, that was the day that Violet and I skipped school. It was when we had sex for the first time. I think that's what happened to Lisa that day. I think she felt it and didn't know what was happening. I think she panicked and had an anxiety attack. She was already on Mercy and Light's radar, and they saw what they wanted to see. A possession, a spell gone wrong, whatever. If that's what you're training yourself to look for in the world, then you'll see it everywhere. That was the day I was lying next to Violet, looking up at the window, and I saw her staring back at me. I knew exactly what I was looking at. It was one of those things that had changed them. That made it so that it was Lisa lying next to me, disguised in Violet's body. I was frozen. After it was gone, I felt guilty. Should I have tried to get it to come back? To fix what it did? Would it even be worth it at that point? By then, the girls had spent more of their lives in the wrong body than in the right one that's neither here nor there anymore. 
Anyway, we both felt awful after that, not thinking about what it would be like for Lisa, where she was, if she was in a safe place. We didn't think about any of that, and we should have. None of this is what you really want to hear, though, is it? You want to hear about the night the girls disappeared. I want to hear everything. That night, when Lisa and Violet walked into the forest, there was a party at the abandoned farm way outside of town. You know that. Violet left the party and went home. There was a kid that was all obsessed with her. He was a suspect for about five minutes because he left right after she did, basically followed her car out of there. He didn't follow her home. I know he didn't follow her home because I did. We made plans to meet back up at that barn at the back end of her property, the one that was more of a guest house. We went back there to hook up. I didn't leave right away because the town gossiped too much. I parked at my house and then followed the fence row at the back of my family's land, over to the back of Violet's. It's the same one that Lisa and I followed when we go back to her place when we were kids. We meet there. I'm a little late. She was waiting for me. All that talk about her getting up in the middle of the night and brushing her teeth, putting on new clothes, and walking out into the forest, it sounds so eerie and creepy, unless you know that she was getting the smell of a campfire off of her and the taste of beer from her breath. She never drank. Not really. And neither did Lisa, because if one of them got drunk and the other one was driving, let's just say we learned our lesson after what happened to Lisa that day in the school cafeteria. So we're dozing off after we finish, and she gets up, goes to the bathroom, puts on shorts and a tank top, and then lies back down. A couple minutes later, she stands up again. She didn't say anything to me. She just starts walking towards the door. I thought she'd left something in the bathroom. But then I heard the outside door open and close, and I realized that one of those episodes was happening. I jumped up, I got dressed, grabbed a flashlight, I got her shoes because I knew I could slow her down enough to get them on her feet. I grabbed a blanket because I thought she'd get cold in just shorts and a tank, and I figured Lisa might need it too. You never know. Anyway, it didn't take me long to catch up with her. I've gotten used to this walk. I was kind of bored, shining the light on the ground, watching for obstacles, but I know the terrain. We were still a few minutes away from the ravine. And that's when she started twitching. She was staggering around, violently, almost falling over. She thrashed her legs mid-stride, making her lose her balance. She fell, and I started freaking out. She got up and kept on like this for about 20, maybe 30 more paces. She started jerking her hands away from something, pulling them up towards her chest. She was still unresponsive. Things escalated from there really quickly. There were these violent jerking motions, one after another, and then she fell to her knees with her mouth wide open. It's like she was screaming, but it was only a very small amount of air that was coming out, kind of like wheezing. She started to fall forward. She was going to fall flat on her face, but I caught her. I laid her down and rolled her onto her back. I checked her breathing and her heart rate. Her breathing was fine. Her pulse was going crazy, but it had slowed down. And then, 
for the first time since I've known about these episodes, almost 10 years, she woke up before we got to the ravine. I was so fucking relieved, Esther. I have never been so afraid. I mean, she was disoriented. She looked around and realized that something was wrong. We weren't where we were supposed to be. Then she started to panic. She's looking around in every direction. She's closing her eyes really tight like she's trying to remember something or push something out of her thoughts. And she just started saying that something was wrong with Lisa. Lisa was gone. She told me later that it was like a light had gone out. She got up and took off towards the ravine. I mean, we were close. I am running right behind her. When we get there, she starts climbing down and digs out one of the flashlights that we keep there and just starts looking all around for Lisa. She's not there, but it always took her longer to get there because she lives in town, but Violet keeps saying that she can't feel her anymore. She says that she can always feel her, just a little bit, but she couldn't feel her anymore. The sun rose. We'd been out there for hours, but Violet said she couldn't go home. She was covered in thick dirt from her knees down and her clothes were torn from falling and thrashing around. She was beside herself and wouldn't be able to explain what was going on. She wouldn't let me help her back to the house. Her parents would be awake any minute and I needed to get my things from the guest house and get home before they realized that she was gone or her dad would think that we had done something. I didn't want to leave her, but I knew she was right. It would be just as dangerous for her. She said she'd tell her mom that she was staying at a friend's house. We didn't think about her dad's truck being there, or the clothes she'd worn to the bonfire being in her room. We didn't think any of it through. We were just reacting. I kissed her. I told her I loved her and that it was all going to be okay. I told her to call me when she got home. We still had no idea how serious it was going to get. I got home and crawled through my window and lay down in bed. It was only a few minutes after I lay down, the phone rang, and it rang through to the answering machine. As soon as it stopped, it started ringing again, right away. I knew exactly who it was. I heard my dad's footsteps going down to the kitchen and answering the phone. I heard him telling someone to calm down, to slow down, and then he came to my door. He was moving fast. He opened it without knocking and I could hear the fear in his voice. He asked me if I knew where Violet was. Somehow I didn't think about this part, what was about to happen. I didn't know what to say, so I said no. You have to remember that at this point I still thought she was going home soon and that we'd get in a little bit of trouble for staying out all night. The thing that I was most afraid of was Violet's dad would find out that we'd been having sex. He had a lot of business relationships with Mercy and Light members, and if rumors started spreading that we were sleeping together, I mean, he may have already assumed so, he wasn't stupid, but if rumors got out, then she'd be a target of the kids who went to Mercy and Light. He'd lose some of those business relationships. <laughs> it sounds insane now, but everything about that town was so toxic back then. 
I didn't really think that anything had happened to Lisa. I thought she might have woken up out of the sleepwalk early and just went home. Over the next few hours, I was talking to Violet's parents. The police came to talk to me. They told me they were searching the Hales farm, the house, everywhere, even in the forest. I was starting to realize that this wasn't just going to blow over. I knew that they would find my hair and fingerprints everywhere, but of course they would. I was there all the time. They took me to the police station and I spent the rest of the day there. I stuck to my story. I didn't know why Violet hadn't gone home yet, but I stuck to what we had planned, as shitty a plan as it was. That evening when Lisa's mom reported her missing, that's when I knew that I was in way over my head. That's when I started to get really scared. And the worst part is, I was scared to death for Lisa, you know, because of what Violet said about being gone. But I couldn't say anything. I actually started feeling guilty. Still, I stuck to my story. When they told me they were searching the forest, I actually felt relieved. I figured they'd find Violet, and she'd tell them everything, and I'd be able to go home. They didn't find her. They sent me home the next day, and I stayed inside for the rest of that day. Two huge photos of Violet and Lisa were on the front page of the paper, and the article said that me and Ricky were being questioned. Just like that, the entire town turned on me. I had no friends anymore. I couldn't leave the house. I was trapped. I hadn't slept that night in jail. I fell asleep as soon as I got home from the police station. I woke up to eat and then went back to sleep. In the middle of the night, I woke up to a sound. Violet was climbing in my window. She said she had tried to find me the night before. She didn't know that I was still being held at the police station. She told me that after I left her in the forest, she went to find Lisa. She said that Lisa was gone, that she wasn't coming back. She didn't tell me how she knew, but I got the point. She said that we couldn't tell anyone that we'd been out there in that part of the forest. She said that if we were blamed, her dad would get her out of any trouble. He was really well connected. But that meant that all of the blame would be on me. And I knew she was right. She crawled into bed with me. She was so exhausted. We didn't know what else we were going to do. We just lay there for a long time. Not talking, not moving. We had no idea what to do next. When I woke up the next morning, she was gone. That next day they found Lisa in the forest. I don't need to tell you what happened. You know all about that day. But here's the thing you don't know. The day after Violet climbed in my window, I had to get away. I drove to the next town over and Carla Hayes followed me. She followed me to a grocery store in Grayson where I just planned to walk around for a little while. I needed to get out of my house. She pulled into the parking spot next to me and got my attention before I could even get out of my car. She stuck her head in my window and just started talking. She told me things that she couldn't possibly know. Carla knew that the girls had been switched by spirits in the forest. That's what she called them. 
She knew that they could feel each other's sensations. She knew that sometimes they sleptwalked into the forest, back to the place where it had happened. She told me that she had talked to Lisa and that Lisa had told her everything. I didn't believe her. I didn't know how she could know what she knew. But I didn't believe that Lisa would tell her. Carla said that she just wanted to help. I knew she was Ricky's mom. I thought maybe Lisa had told Ricky and Ricky had told Carla. I don't know. I definitely didn't know until the other day that they had kidnapped her. I really didn't. Anyway, so that night I waited up and when Violet came to my window, I crawled out and told her about Carla approaching, about how she knew things that only me, her, and Lisa knew and that she wanted to help. So we drove to Carla's place. I mean, it was late, two, three o'clock in the morning. Carla said she'd made a plan. She laid it out for us. She said that if we were going to come forward to the police, we had to do it now. Violet was adamant that that wasn't an option. She wasn't gonna let me take the blame for everything that had happened. Lisa's death, her disappearance, at this point, she'd been gone for four days. Carla accepted this and moved on to the next option. Violet had to leave town, and it had to be now. She looked so scared. So I told her that if she'd left, I'd follow her, and when everything died down, we'd find each other in a few weeks and just start over somewhere else. Carla shot that down right away. She was right. You can't just start over together. Not anymore. She said that she had to go. Now. And that no one could know where. She'd drive her to a bus station far away and leave her there. Carla didn't want to know what bus she took or where she went. I feel like I need to say again that we were 18. Looking back, it is a miracle that any of this worked. But somehow it did. I had never seen her cry like that before. Violet didn't know how to be out on her own. She was scared. She didn't want to say goodbye to me or to everyone else. Her family, everyone. But she was determined. She'd have to go far enough away that the news wouldn't have aired her photo. That meant Kentucky, West Virginia, and Ohio were off limits. After a while, Lisa's case went cold, and so did Violet's. I left for the University of Cincinnati and never looked back. I mean, I went home a handful of times for family events and holidays. There were still a lot of people that thought that I did something to those girls, so I just stopped coming back. And that's that. That's that? That's that. Now, I'm sorry, but I've got to get going. Seriously? You're going to drop that on me and then say you have to go? Yep, I am. So you expect me to believe that Violet and Lisa switched bodies? That Violet lived in the woods for four days while they were scouring the forest with search parties and dogs? That Carla volunteered to transport a missing person across state lines? No. I just told you a ghost story. That's what you're here for, right? The ghost story? Like all the others. No, no, no. Don't you dare. You don't get to end <laughs> it like that. I need to go. Uh, your coat's over by the door.
And that's when I remembered it. The first time that I came to Anthony's house. I hung my coat up, and on the table there was a stack of mail. And one envelope stood out. It was decorated. It was from someone named Emily. Who is Emily? I'm sorry, I need you to go. No, stop it. Who is Emily? You need to go. Why do you have suitcases packed? Why did you tell me all of this now? Get out. That was my last contact with Anthony Bledsoe. And just like that, I had burned my last source. Unsurprisingly, neither Ricky or Carla would answer my calls. I went back to Olive Hill one last time. I knocked on both of their doors. No one answered. There are so many loose ends. The story that Anthony told me doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even really make sense by itself. When you factor in elements from the actual case, even more of it doesn't add up. Whatever happened that night, it was tragic, and it was too much for a teenager to process all alone. Are there truths wrapped up in the coping mechanisms of a man who never came to terms with those three days in the summer of 2001? My producer congratulated me when I sent in that last bit of audio. He said I'd gotten further in this case than any other journalist before me, further than the police, the FBI. It still doesn't feel satisfying. There are so many loose ends, but I suppose that in real life, nothing is ever really resolved completely. Closure is not necessarily the natural state of human relationships. Rational behavior is not necessarily our natural disposition either. We're complicated creatures, aren't we? When I'd hit dead ends in this case, I could count on a call from Anthony Bledsoe. Something tells me I won't be getting any more calls. I find it interesting that these three adults collaborated to keep their secrets hidden. Secrets are a terrible burden, and they've held on to this secret for so long. I'm more convinced than ever that we'll never know what happened for sure that night, July 20th, 2001. Is it possible that a forest creature, a fairy, swapped the girls' bodies by accident when they died falling off of that ravine all those years ago, setting in motion a trajectory that would lead to the events of July 2001? Probably not. But I honestly believe that Ricky, Carla, and Anthony believe it. And from everything I can tell, I think they believe it because Lisa and Violet believed it. I'm going to go out of bounds for a journalist for just a moment. I'm going to tell you what I think. I think they're doing what they're doing to protect Violet. I think they've been doing it for a very long time. And especially for Anthony, I think it's exhausting. Why are they so intent on protecting the secrets of a girl who disappeared 17 years ago? Because, like Sheriff Wood told me, this is not about the past. It's about the present. 
I think Violet is out there. I think she's going by a different name. I think she's probably gone by a lot of different names. I finished up in Olive Hill after only an hour or so, after neither Ricky or Carla answered their door. I drove down to the cemetery behind the church I grew up attending. We weren't a Mercy and Light family. We were a regular church family. I don't go to church anymore, and neither did my mom for the last 20 years of her life. But she wanted to be buried there anyway, because that's where my dad is. And just like Anthony never got over Violet, and Ricky never really got over Lisa, my mom never got over my dad. It's a tiny plot of land, not more than the size of a tennis court. It's quiet, green, lots of shade. It's the kind of place that my parents would like. There's one thing I can't shake about my mom's house. The day I went to make a cup of coffee and found the machine already stocked with fresh grounds, ready to go. My mom had a routine and she didn't break it for anything. Her routine kept her anxiety in check. She never deviated from the little rituals that brought her comfort. One of them was waking up, coming downstairs, and brewing her coffee, letting the smell fill the kitchen, watching the wisps of mist rising off the foothills. So if she died overnight, why were there fresh grounds in the machine? There was a note on the nightstand when I came home. Sorry about the garage. I'm not saying that my mom knew that she was going to die. And I don't think that she had some special premonition. I'm wondering if my mom, in the midst of her panic attacks, all of the nights that she wrote little notes goodbye, expecting that she'd die in her sleep and that I'd be the one to find her. Did she take the time to go and load the coffee maker, knowing that I'm not good at handling things like this, things like settling affairs, knowing that I'd need a cup of coffee to get through it. All of those false alarms, the hundreds of little notes. Did she load the coffee maker every time? All the way back to when I was in high school, those nights I stayed at a friend's house. When I was in college in Lexington, when she thought I was in Lexington, before I had the guts to tell her I'd been living in New York for months. Before I broke her heart. Am I overthinking again? Maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe she changed her routine. Life's full of surprises. Journalists aren't supposed to speculate. But I didn't go to journalism school. I'm out of Leeds. This story has come to an end. My mother's affairs are in order. I said my goodbyes at the cemetery and I left Olive Hill. I don't think I'll be going back again. 
I drove to Cincinnati on a hunch and stopped by Anthony's place one more time. He didn't come to the door when I knocked, and when I peeked through the windows, it was empty. I expected that, because I think once this airs on the radio and in your podcast feed, he'll need a fresh start. I think Anthony's apartment is empty because he's on his way to keep a promise that he made so many years ago. And I think I know who's waiting for him at the end of that long, long drive. In my mind's eye, I see all of the years they missed and all of the years they might still have. From Cincinnati, the drive to New York is mostly mountains through West Virginia and Pennsylvania. I passed a lot of little towns on the way, unremarkable and entirely forgettable, just like my little town. But I think about the remarkable people in my town, a misfit and a loser who became a crusader to honor his first love, a single mom looking for somewhere to belong who did a horrible thing and spent the rest of her life trying to make it right, even if her methods were imperfect. Somewhere in western New Jersey I spaced out, and in my imagination I saw all of those little acts of devotion and loyalty and honor and love and how they drive us to do remarkable things for each other. How many of those stories never get told? Then I imagined some little mountain cemetery, decades from now in Olive Hill. Two people who left and came back much later in life under different names, and lived out their final years back where they started. It's a lot harder to do something like that these days. A lot harder. It's a lovely thought, don't you think? Olive Hill is created by Ian Epperson, Brooke Jeanette, Bridget Howard, and Grant Schumer. If you like what you hear and you want to help us get the word out, then stop what you're doing and give us a five-star rating and review us on iTunes or wherever you're hearing this. It helps others find the show, and you can message us and let us know you did, and we'll shower you in praise and gratitude. Last chance, y'all. Olive Hill is written and directed by Ian Epperson. The voice of Esther Snow is Brooke Jeanette. The voice of Anthony Bledsoe is Brian Burkhardt. Sound production by Liz Walker, music by Drew Raleigh. Additional information is listed in the show notes. Olive Hill is a fictional story, but it's a real town. This show has been a labor of love and an absolute delight to produce. We hope you've had as much fun listening as we've had making it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>